So last Sunday for Easter, what we were talking about, which has always been fascinating to me uh, as I read the post-resurrection accounts in the, in the Gospels, was that none of Jesus' friends recognized him when they saw him for the first time. That was always amazing to me. How in the world does that work? Well, we talked about that. And we talked about the fact that our beliefs and our expectations limit our ability to see. Basically, we don't see reality directly. We see reality through the filter of our beliefs. That's, that's what we really see. And until those belief system, until that belief system, until those, those restrictions are lifted, we can't see the truth that is right in front of us. And so Jesus was not recognizable to them because they were still looking for him among the dead and not the living. It was, it's an amazing phenomenon. We talked about that. The Sunday before that, on Palm Sunday, we talked about the fact that the people did not recognize the hour of their visitation, is the way that the, uh, the gospel puts it. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, and the people see him through the prism, through the lens, through the filter of their agenda and of their desired outcomes. But they don't see Jesus for who he is. They're seeing him for what they hope that he can do for them or for the threat that he poses. The zealots and the people wanted Jesus to ride in as their warrior king, Messiah, who was going to throw out the Romans and change their circumstances for the better. The Pharisees and the Sadducees saw Jesus through the the lens of the threat that he posed to their power base. The Romans saw the threat that he posed to their tax base. And, of course, the followers of Jesus saw him as a ticket to the big time. When he got into his kingdom, they were going to be able to sit at his right hand and his left hand and finally rise out of the anonymity that their marginalized status had given them so far in life. And so here we have two Sundays in a row talking about how difficult it is to see Jesus for who he really is. Whether we're fighting through the lens of our own agenda and desires and the outcomes that we want, or whether we're looking through our own belief system and what we, what we can even imagine to be true or not true, real or not real, it is so hard for us to be able to see who Jesus really is. And that was 2,000 years ago. It's even harder now if you think about it for us. 2,000 years removed, with 2,000 years of theology and culture accrued all around Jesus, now we have all of these cultural and theological and religious images that are also standing between us and who Jesus really is. How do we get through that? How do we move through that? We even talked about the fact that uh, the way that we envision Jesus physically is a far cry from what the first century average Palestinian man looked like. We talked about the fact that forensically, because of the the, uh, skeletons that um, archaeologists have found, they know that the average Palestinian man in the first century was five foot one and about 110 pounds. We know culturally that they would not have had long hair. The hair was cropped short. The beard was cropped short. They would have been dark-skinned, swarthy, I guess is the word for that. Very different type of, of body image and facial construction than we typically would think of because we have acculturated Jesus into our culture, just as every culture across the globe has acculturated Jesus. So all of these filters, if you wish, all of these screens stand between us and Jesus. 
And some of them really don't matter in terms of what Jesus looked like. But who Jesus really was matters a whole bunch if we're trying to follow him in our own lives. If you take a look at that first quote there at uh, Matthew sixteen fifteen, Jesus is walking with his friends and he says to them, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? That is a huge question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you really think that I am? How am I writing into your life? And that's the question that we all need to be asking ourselves at the same time. Jesus is really asking us by extension, who do you say that I am? So who is this Jesus? What do we really know about Jesus? What can we know about Jesus? And I suppose, more importantly, what's important for us to know about Jesus? What's really going to make a difference for us? Now, the, end, the New Testament doesn't really tell us much, and it doesn't say anything straight out. <laughs> you have to really read between the lines. The New Testament narrative is so compressed. Have you ever noticed that? You know, you just get a few sentences about things, and you want pages. You know, all the things that we would like to know, to, to dive in. We wish that the New Testament read like some novel, you know, that just gives us all the descriptions. But the Hebrews didn't work that way. The Hebrews really didn't care about form. The Hebrews cared about function, which is a completely different thing. We've said in here before, if I held up a pencil right now and I asked you to describe it, what would you say? Well, you'd probably say, well, it's about this long, it's skinny, it's yellow, and it's got a rubber pink thing on the end of it. If you asked a Hebrew, describe this thing, they would say, it's something you write with. That's the way that they look at things. How does it function? You don't find physical descriptions of the characters in the Bible because it didn't matter. But you find lots of information about how they functioned in their communities, in their tribes, in the various circumstances in which they found themselves. And so when we look at Jesus, we're going to find that there is descriptions of of his function, how he related, how he loved, what he did. And that's where we need to focus because that's what the writers of Scripture thought was important enough to preserve in these documents that have now been preserved for us for 2,000 years. So, If we really do look at the New Testament and we read between the lines and we look at the clues that are available to us, we find that a portrait of Jesus starts to emerge. And that portrait can give us something about the essence of who he was. We never get to step inside of Jesus' mind. The writers of Scripture never do that. And so we can see what was important to Jesus. We can start to see what the essential qualities of someone who's living in kingdom, as he was trying to teach us how to do, is there for us if we can start to read between the lines. So that's what I want to do a little bit this morning, is see if we can glean something about Jesus' personality, who he really was, and see how that can relate to our lives. Now, for me, I got a little help early on. This is getting to be, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. And some of you have already heard this story. Yeah, <laughs> but you're going to hear it again. And some of, for some of you, my jokes are still new, so you're going to hear it for the first time. When uh, I was in the church, uh, Marion and I were in the church together where I was ordained. There was, a, there was an elderly man there. I see late 70s, something like that. But he was stricken with diabetes, so he was, he was relegated to a wheelchair. And he lived in a trailer park um, on very modest means. 
and uh, and I didn't really know him very well at first, of course, but there was something about him that always drew me to him. And as we started to get to know each other and we got on a first-name basis, his name was Lou, Lou Sauer. Lou had a way of being able to look at you across the room from a wheelchair with another hundred people there and make you feel like you were the only person in the room. He would look straight at you and he would split his face with this grin that literally went from ear to ear and there was a big space between his two front teeth. So you couldn't, you couldn't miss him. So here he is, you know, bald head, roundish face, big grin, gap, and just staring right into you with this big, how you doing, Dave? And this, 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 this yell and this connection. And it was like electric. And there wasn't anyone like him in that church that related to me that way. And I really didn't even know him that well. But because of this, I wanted to know him more, and we started to, to connect more, and we would go get some coffee at times. And as I got to know him better and better, I realized that this was something that went all the way to the bone with Lou. It was intrinsic to, to, who, to who he was. And his life was not easy. And yet you would never know it when he rolled in on a Sunday morning in his wheelchair. Well, as his diabetes got worse, he finally got to the point where he just said no to the dialysis. He just didn't want to go through it anymore. And, of course, this was a death sentence. And he knew it, but he was just tired of continuing to go through everything that he had to go through to maintain his life. And so as he worsened, he went into the hospital. He went into a convalescent hospital. And uh, Marion and I visited him there. And it, we were obviously very cognizant of the fact that this would probably be the last time that we would see him. And he was laying in his bed, and uh, his, his sheets were kind of askew, and there was big, dark patches under the skin on his legs and on his arms as the, as the diabetes was taking its toll. And we just sat there and we talked to him. And just about inconsequential things, he loved the Trojans of USC, and so we had to talk about the Trojans and whatever else came up. But as he started to get tired and we recognized he needed to sleep, um, you know, Marion and I were saying our goodbyes and getting ready to leave. And just as we were ready to go, he sat up and took both of our hands in his hand, and he just held them really tight, and he looked right into our eyes, and he said, love each other, just love each other. And then he waited a beat and kid around a little bit. You know, when you are delivering what you realize are the last words to someone that you care about and love, what is it that you would want to say? What he chose were 12 words, just 12 words, love each other, just love each other and kid around a little bit. And it was the kidding around that really struck me. And we left and Three days later, he was dead. But that line stuck with me. Those words stuck with me. I was within two weeks of being ordained as pastor, and that Sunday of my ordination was going to be my first message that I was going to deliver to the, to the congregation. And uh, I thought that I, I'd been you know, practicing and, and prepping for weeks, if not months, and yet, those lines of Lou, I couldn't get out of my head because I realized he said in 12 words what I was trying to say in this whole half hour. And I couldn't condense it. I couldn't get it any better than that. And I flipped and changed the message completely and called it the gospel according to Lou. And that's what it was. 
And I wanted to read just a little bit. I put this in the book, but uh, if you just take a look in your inserts, if you want to. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, verse 1. Love each other, just love each other. Chapter 1, verse 2, and kid around a little bit. Lou loved us and loved to kid around with us. His love was the way he had decided to live his life, but his kidding around was the way that we knew that we were loved. His playfulness made his love real, not the love itself, because love is never transferred directly. The effect love has on our choices is all that can ever be felt by another. We often say that love is a decision, and so it is, in part. Love may have been Lou's decision, but his kidding around was the proof that he actually liked the decision he made. That his decision had transformed him from someone who practiced love to someone who had fallen deeply in love. And Lou loved to kid around. He was always teasing. He was always laughing. There was something about him that was just infectious. Absolutely infectious. And so... What I realized about Lou was that he was a type of Christ for me. He was the way that I imagined. Actually, no, I wanted to say it that way. He wasn't the way I imagined Jesus, but he was the way that I started to believe that Jesus must have been. If Jesus had the kind of effect that he had on people, sometimes just at first meeting that is recorded in the scriptures, he had to have been more like Lou than I ever would have expected him to be. I grew up Catholic. I grew up in a very high-registered church. Everything was pious and holy and carved in stone. Everything was, you know, wasn't King James English in the Catholic Church, but close to it, right? And so there was a register there that never allowed Jesus to come out and play. Never allowed Jesus to be what Lou was to me and the way that he represented Jesus for me. This was revolutionary for me to make this this turnaround and realize that something else was going on here. Something else I had to take a look at if I was really going to understand who this Jesus was. You know, when we started the effect here, we found this picture of a laughing Jesus. Actually, I put the picture in your inserts if you want to take a look. And it's hanging right around this door here if you want to take a look. But the first time that we hung it up, It created a stir because people hadn't seen Jesus in this way. A laughing Jesus? The scriptures don't say Jesus laughed. So therefore, what, he didn't? He never did? I remember one woman looked at that picture and was horrified. She said, Jesus is too holy to ever have acted like that. You know? And yet, so many others, especially the ones that were really hurting, the ones that came through our ministry, um, through... Uh, recovery and whatnot, when they looked at that picture and that one too of a smiling Jesus, it struck a chord in them. It drew them in. They wanted to talk about it. I'd never seen Jesus depicted that way, but it was a comfort. It was a relief to all the heaviness and all the shame and the guilt and everything that they were feeling to know that Jesus was a playful Jesus, that something different was going on here. What can we know about Jesus? What can we really know about him? At least, I guess, what can we deduce about Jesus will be the best that we can do as we take a look at these scriptures and try to find out where he falls. Can we in any way prove this thesis that Lou really was an analog of Jesus in the way that he loved us 
and played with us and connected with us. Well, I have five attributes that I want to see if I can present to you and see if you feel that this is justified as we look at the, uh, at the scriptures. And the first one is, they're, they're written in your inserts, the first one is that Jesus was lighthearted. He was funny. <laughs> he was humorous. He was quick-witted. Oh, my gosh. He had a mind, you know. I think Robin Williams thinks fast, and he, he could think on his feet and make things happen. So he's lighthearted. How do we know this? Well, as I said, the scriptures have told us that Jesus wept twice. He wept over Jerusalem, and he wept over his, the death of his friend Lazarus. Nowhere in the scripture does Jesus, is Jesus depicted as laughing or even smiling, only weeping twice. And so we have this image of him. But there is a a principle in the way that the ancient writers wrote scripture in that they never related something that was common knowledge. You know? They lived in a desert, so they never talked about the sunshine. They talked about the rain, right? And so Jesus is never spoken about having laughed or smiled because I believe he was doing it all the time. There was nothing to report there. If you knew anything about Jesus, you knew his personality. You knew how quick he was to split his face in a big old grin and to laugh and to play with his friends. So the weeping was something that needed to be reported because that was uncharacteristic. That was something that stood out. But this is a principle in Scripture. And so maybe we can take it and understand something a little bit more about who Jesus is. Did you know that there's humor in the Gospels? And you're probably thinking, well, I never really laughed out loud reading the New Testament. But there is humor there. It's that the humor of the ancient Eastern peoples is very different than humor of modern Westerners. Okay, when we have a joke, we tell a joke, it's going to go in a straight line from a premise or a setup you know, to some sort of buildup, and then it's going to hit a punchline that's going to take you in a completely different direction. I have some examples. Two lepers are playing poker. One threw his hand in and the other laughed his head off. (laughs) Somebody stole my mood ring and I'm not really sure how I feel about that. A blind man walks into a bar and a table and a chair. A sandwich walks into a bar. Bartender says, you got to leave. We don't serve food here. Did you hear about the psychic midget who robbed a bank? Now there's a small medium at large. (laughs) I had a dream I was Chinese. When I woke up, I was disoriented. I said to the gym instructor, can you teach me to do the splits? And he said, how flexible are you? I said, I can't make Tuesdays. (laughs) All right. Those weren't belly laughs, but you get the idea here. Why are those funny? To the extent that they were funny. Why are they funny? Because the joke is leading you along one path and then the punchline takes you in a completely different direction. You are engaging your rational mind all along that setup and premise and then all of a sudden it breaks and you're no longer in rational land anymore. You are released from that way of thinking that is so heavy and so restrictive. That feels pleasurable. That feels delightful. We laugh at things that are pleasurable and delightful. That's the way the joke works. Now, for Easterners, 
ancient Easterners, they are an epic people. We talked about it, experiential, participatory, image space, and communal. They're not going to be processing on a cognitive level so much. They're going to be processing on an image level. Think about what children laugh at. What do children laugh at? They just laugh at funny images. They don't need a setup or a premise. They just see a funny face and they're off to the races. They see something going on, they laugh. With the ancients, their jokes worked the same way. Their humor worked the same way. There was a premise and a setup, but it just presented a funny image, and that was the punchline itself. Scholars have talked about the fact that Jesus' humor, from an Aramaic point of view, is hilarious. One scholar said that his four-year-old son, when he was reading him, the, the one saying about Jesus, saying, you know, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own eye, and the four-year-old just broke out hysterically laughing at the image of a log stuck in a person's eye. That was funny. See, we have to see that the images that Jesus used, the way he phrased things from an Aramaic, from a Hebrew point of view, was full of humor. It was full of lighthearted humor. Think about some of the things that he said when he said that, uh, first of all, yeah, we got the, we got the log eye thing going, of course. But um, how about the mustard seed? We don't see that as particularly funny. But for, for a Hebrew mind, you got this tiny seed that grows into this huge tree and all of the birds are, are uh, you know, nesting in its branches and enjoying its shade. That's a delightful image that they just grab onto and they would see it maybe not as funny, but it's lighthearted. Jesus says, you know, you don't take your lamp and put it under a bushel. You take it out and you let the light shine. Another funny image is they would have seen as funny trying to put a lamp under a bushel. Nobody would do that, of course. If your son asks you for a loaf of bread, would you give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, would you give him a snake? Other funny images that would just take them into that place from a lighthearted point of view. How about... You know, if your hand is causing you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. You know, they're going to see that as a humorous image as well. We're taking it more literally. They're understanding it from another point of view. How about when Jesus said, if someone asks for your coat, give them your tunic as well. See, that's not going to be funny to us. But they know that there are only two major pieces of, of clothing that people wore. Once you give your tunic, you're standing there naked. Now that's funny. See how that works? They got the image going on. So they're chuckling. They're laughing along with Jesus, you can imagine. Jesus says, if someone goes and slaps you on your right cheek, present the left as well. Think about this. To slap someone on your right cheek in that culture, you only used your right hand. That means it's going to be a backhand slap, which was a slap of contempt. It was a slap of a superior to an inferior. But if you present your left cheek, the only way that you can slap is this way, which would, for men, be considered a sissy slap, you see. And so that is another image that they would be processing at the same time culturally that we don't get. So many of these things, how about burying talents in the ground? Or how about the camel going through the eye of a needle? All of these images would be funny to them the same way that they would be funny to a child if they actually saw the image. They're seeing them in their mind's eye. But Jesus is playing with these words. Jesus is giving them these images. He's the consummate storyteller. And he's using humor as a way of getting his point across in a way that we don't typically see. Secondly, Jesus was playful. He was endeared to his friends. They loved him. They loved him intimately. They connected with him. He was quick to connect with everybody. 
He was quick to celebrate with anybody, even strangers, sit at table with them. The children were drawn to him. Jesus was a kid magnet. Everywhere he went, if he walked into a town, the kids were on him to the point that his handlers, his friends, were trying to shoo them away so that he could do the important business with the adults, the ones that actually would give the the tithes and keep the bills paid and all that. But Jesus was not going to have any of that. And we have to have an image of how Jesus played with these kids. The pictures that we have of Jesus with children where he's sitting ramrod straight and the child is perched on his knee and he's kind of patting the head or just looking you know, at them very, very you know, soulfully. Oh my gosh, come on. Is that way a kid plays? Would a kid be drawn to that if they knew that that was his personality? He's going to be rolling on the ground with them. He's going to be giving horseback rides. They're going to be pulling his beard. These are the images that we have to see. And of course the people would be horrified at this. Jewish men didn't act this way in public. Teachers didn't act this way in public. And and yes, I'm I'm taking some liberties here, but I'm hoping that you're getting the point that if Jesus had the reaction of the people the way he did, and because of the clues that we see in the Gospels, we can see how Jesus had to have been so much different than we typically portray. He was called a drunkard and a glutton. When compared with his cousin, John the Baptist, who was so stayed and, and fasting all the time. And here's Jesus eating and drinking. And he, he you know, makes no bones about it whatsoever. When he's called on it, he said, hey, you know, this is when the bridegroom is here. This is when we celebrate. You'll have plenty of time to fast later on if you want to do that sort of thing. But right now we're connecting. He had essentially a table ministry. In that culture, to eat with someone was to make a pact with them. It was to sign a treaty with them. It was to show ongoing connection with them. It wasn't just a meal. It was much more than that. And he would sit with anybody who would sit with him and have that kind of connection with them instantly, whether they stood outside the law and were a tax collector or a prostitute or whatever it happened to be, or whether they were outside of Judaism itself, whether they were Samaritan or whether they were Phoenician, it didn't really matter. Even if they were Roman, Jesus didn't make those kinds of distinctions in terms of being able to connect with them. Think about this. Jesus loved to give his closest friends nicknames, right? So think about Shimon, Shimon, Simeon, Simon, who later is renamed Peter. But Simon means, since it's a derivative of the word for Shem, Shem is is the word for name, but also means light, sound, vibration. Shimon means to be heard, to be listened to. It also could mean reputation. But then at one point, Jesus renames him Kepha. And he says, you are Kepha. And upon this Kepha, I will build my church. Kepha means rock. And of course, Peter, it comes from Petros, the Greek, means rock or pebble. And so, it's kind of like he's calling him Rocky, but um, even more so, it's kind of ironic. He's saying, okay, Simon, I'm going to call you Kepha, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church. Think about Peter's personality as it's preserved. He was the guy who was the loose cannon. He was the guy who was just, you know... Words came out without any thought whatsoever. He was the guy who was jumping off boats and jumping into the water and doing... 
here's this scatterbrained kind of guy, and this is the rock on which he's going to build this church. You know, there's a bit of irony there, possibly. I don't know for sure, but I can see the possibility of it. But it was a loving, intimate, and, and possibly humorous nickname. He named James and John the Sons of Thunder. And obviously they must have had some kind of temper, you know. There, there's, a, <laughs> there's at one point where they're traveling through, I think it's Samaria, and, uh, and someone is misbehaving, and they come to him and they say, should we call on God to just bring down hellfire on them? You know, And so it's like, okay, you get a little glimpse of why maybe Jesus called them that. But here are these nicknames, playful nicknames, ways of connecting. Those are his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. You know, the inner circle. And he has these nicknames for all of them. We have to see Jesus in this light. Third, he was bold. He was larger than life. He was absolutely unafraid to act. He was unafraid to decide, to make decisions. And he was always surprising. And he was outrageous, absolutely outrageous. When he's 12 years old and his parents take him to Jerusalem for the, for the Passover, he ditches them. Three days out in the caravan before they realize he's not with them and have to take the trip all the way back to find him doing what he's doing in the temple, just talking with the elders and doing his thing. You know, outrageous, surprising, bold. He's 12 years old. How about when he cleanses the temple in his last week? He walks in there, he sees what's going on, he overturns the tables, he throws everything upside down and tells them right to their face, speaks truth to power. This is my father's house, and you've made it a den of thieves. Bold. When he says, eat my body and drink my blood to a Jewish audience, unbelievable. Many of, people, many of his followers left him on that day. They could not handle that kind of imagery. But he's deciding to use it specifically to get a point across that had to be that jarring, had to be that even offensive for them to understand what it meant to be completely identified with him and with Father, the extent that it took, the, 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 the amount of, of preconception that had to be laid down on the floor before you could move into that kind of connection in that sort of direction. The Samaritan woman and the centurion, he just connects with them in broad daylight, Men didn't talk to women in the, in, the, in the square, in the marketplace. Good Jews didn't even cross through Samaria. They would go around it because of the way that they felt about them ethnically. Not only does he go through Samaria, he stops and he talks to a woman, a marginalized person, but a Samaritan woman. And when the centurion, a Roman centurion, the hated oppressors of Judea, comes to him and asks him to cure one of his household persons, Jesus interacts with him acquiesces to his wish, absolutely bold, unafraid to act, doing the right thing regardless of consequences. The Sabbath controversies that he had constantly with the Pharisees. And think about just the parable of the Good Samaritan. Putting the Samaritan as the hero of the story. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. The outrageous request of that younger son. One that could have resulted in capital punishment. And yet, look at how that story goes. Jesus is bold with his imagery. 
He's bold with his actions. He knows what he's about and what he needs to do. And he's willing to go there. And he doesn't hold back at all. And of course, it ends up getting him killed. But this is who Jesus is. Lighthearted, playful, bold, but also vulnerable. He's unafraid to show emotion. He's unafraid to embrace weakness. He's unafraid to submit himself, even as leader of his group. We talked about the fact that he wept twice. He wept over his friend Lazarus. He weeps over what he knows is going to happen to Jerusalem if they don't turn and find another path for themselves. And since they're missing the hour of their visitation, he knows that's not going to happen. He knows what the Romans are going to be doing in 30 years. He weeps. He's not afraid to show his emotion. When the centurion comes to him and asks for a healing, and Jesus says, okay, take me to your house. He says, no, wait, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed because I understand authority. I understand how this works, and I know that you have that authority. And Jesus is flabbergasted. He's amazed. He turns to his friends and he says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Look at this. He could be surprised. He wasn't afraid to show surprise. He wasn't afraid to show how amazed he was. People who are trying to hold on to a certain decorum, they don't do that. They act as if they understand everything and know everything all the time. Jesus doesn't need to do that. He'll weep when he's drawn to, and he'll be amazed when he's drawn to. What about what Gethsemane? What happened there? You're crying out for a different outcome, a different way, sweating blood in his anguish. And at the cross, just to cry out, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me here? Why am I going through this? To submit, to wash the feet of his disciples. We talked about that on Monday, Thursday. For him to take that subordinate position, something that you couldn't even make a Israelite slave do, wash the feet of a guest, Jesus voluntarily takes on. Not afraid to submit. Not afraid to show weakness. Not afraid to show his vulnerability or to be vulnerable. This is such an interesting mix, isn't it? to be bold and vulnerable at the same time. And then finally, to be integrated. All aspects of Jesus' thoughts, his words, and his deeds are functioning as one. There is nothing out of order. Everything that we know about him goes in the same direction. It connects. Jesus knew his Father. He taught with authority. Not like the Pharisees. The people are very clear about that. They're amazed at the way that he teaches because they can see that it comes from this deep place. They can see that it's integrated through everything. And there's this intrinsic difference that is immediately apparent as they hear him, as they connect with him, that they don't get from their other leaders. So those are the five that I see. Lighthearted, playful, bold, vulnerable, and integrated. What of these traits 
can teach us something about ourselves? How does it relate to us? What can we learn from these? If you take them all together, all these attributes, they point to a life based on the assurance of love. Jesus was absolutely assured of his Father's love. He knew he had that, and he knew that he couldn't lose it, which allowed him to be able to be that bold, allowed him to be able to act that way, to be vulnerable, to submit, to not have to hold on to anything, because there was a flow from his Father through him that was never going to cease. And he knew that. He had that absolute assurance. He knew his Father, and he knew the news was good. (laughs) And he had the assurance of a truth that absolutely made him free. Free to be who he really was, holding nothing back. He was free to love and free to live. Now let's take this and flip it. If we're living a fear-based life, one that doesn't have the assurance of this kind of love, love that we can't lose, every single one of these five attributes becomes its opposite. The boldness of freedom and love becomes paralysis. It becomes procrastination. It becomes a constant deferring of decisions because we're afraid. Lightheartedness turns into something that's dour, something that's depressed. Playfulness turns into always being serious, stodgy even. Vulnerability becomes someone who is guarded, someone who has defenses up, or someone who's self-righteous, who can't allow people to see any weakness whatsoever. And the integrated part, that becomes scattered. (laughs) That becomes unreliable. That becomes chaotic. And so the question is, if our lives, what do our lives look like? Do they look like the five attributes of Jesus? Do they look like the, the, uh, the flip side, somewhere in between most likely? How do we get this blessed assurance that Jesus obviously had that allowed him to exhibit this kind of personality and these traits? If we want to live like Jesus, how are we going to do that? Take a look at Acts 10, verse 38. This is Peter speaking. Rocky. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And I just want to point out that the word that's translated devil here is Bisha. We've talked about that. So it could be translated as evil. But even more importantly, it could be translated as unripe, immature, not ready for prime time. So you know he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by their own immaturity, by their unreadiness, their unripeness, by their ignorance, for God was with him. He went about doing good. Man. That would be a perfect epitaph, I think, for every one of us, that we just lived our lives by going around and doing good, leaving people better than we found them. If we can do that, if we can go about doing good things, leaving people better than we found them, in those moments, we feel the connection of love. To give something to someone, whether we really know them or not, whether we even like them or not, 
but there is this authentic human exchange that happens. In the flowing out of that love, we finally understand what that love means. How it flows to us is only perceptible, perceivable, when it's flowing out to someone else, and then we understand the way that it works. If it's hard for us to imagine that there's always going to be a flow of love when we feel it flowing out to somebody else and leaving them better than we found them, something changes in us. In that moment, there is an understanding, a wordless understanding of how we are loved. If it's possible for us to love this person who may or, not, may, or may not deserve what we're giving, then he who loved first has already poured that through us. To just go about life that way, moment by moment, is going to give us this blessed assurance that we've been singing about for several hundred years. To know that we know that we are loved in this way. And when we become more and more assured that that love is there and is always there and in each connection we're going to find it there, things that occur to us, we will become more and more bold to do. How many times have you thought of something that you probably should say or probably should do and then you leave the moment and you're kicking yourself all the way home because you didn't do it and you'll never know what the outcome might have been because you didn't act on it at the time. That boldness, that ability to just be playful and lighthearted and not take things so seriously and just be in the moment and offer what the moment requires what the person who's in our moment requires, that's a different kind of interaction. Jesus had it. Lou had it. I remember one of the first men's retreats that I went to at this church that we're talking about. And it was up in Idlewild. So we go up the mountain. And I don't know, there was 75 or 80 of us, I think, at the time. Guys in a big barn kind of you know thing. And we're, we're talking... Um, Scotty's head's going up and down because he was there. And uh, I remember that there was this one question and answer session that was going on. We're all there in general convocation, and one of the pastors or someone was, was talking, and one of the men was disagreeing with him, asking very pointed questions, and then the answer came back in a very pointed way, and the thing started escalating, escalating, until they were basically shouting at each other, and when the last shout came in, everything just went totally silent. And we're all sitting there thinking, what just happened? How are we going to get out of this? Hard to be happy after this one? You know, what are we going to do? And then, suddenly, from the middle of the room, you hear our senior pastor's voice. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And everybody just starts busting up and laughing. And then everybody had to sing along. And, and we sang the whole song together, a cappella, in unison, and everything was healed. Everything was fixed. What in the world <laughs> gave him the idea to sing that song at that moment? And what gave him the boldness to think, Maybe this is the thing that we need right now to heal the situation. It was a connection with spirit. It was an assurance that our pastor had that this would be exactly what needed to happen at this particular time. And it was. How do you get there? How do you get to a place where you can just speak up and somehow know or be willing to take the risk that you don't? 
and just go for it anyway. It's going about and doing good things. It's going about and connecting with people, giving them eye contact, meeting them where they are, and finding out that there is a spontaneous inspiration that can take place, that can allow you to let the person you're with know that they are the most important person in the room right now. That even though you have your family and you have your life right now, you are the most important person in the room. Right now, you matter. And when we get to that place, we will understand that we are the most important person in the room as far as God is concerned and always will be. I am and every one of you are too because God has an infinite number of best friends and we can't exhaust that ever. This is who Jesus was, I believe. This is who Jesus is, I believe. And what he's saying is that we can do everything that he has done and even greater things than those, which means that we can be part of a community that feels like that, feels like kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything that you have given us to show us who you are. To show us the kind of God that you are. That you're a playful God. That you're lighthearted. That you have a sense of humor. That you're unassuming. That you live to serve us and everything and everyone. Help us to value those attributes as much as you do. Help us to see them as the very lifeblood of our own lives. The essence of who we are. And help us to understand that we'll never feel more fulfilled than when we are living life at that level. Thank you, Jesus, for everything that you have given us and shown us and have lived with us. And thank you for the life that continues to guide us and take us into yourself. Help us to see ourselves as blessed people with the inspiration spontaneously to be able to create the kind of community that you describe as kingdom. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Everybody stand, please.